Hi, thanks for joining. This is Seeking Sustainability Live, a podcast focused on finding better options and solutions and innovation from across Japan in terms of sustainability that hopefully you will get great ideas from and be inspired and spark new ideas in your own life, whether you're living and working in Japan or anywhere around the world. Thank you so much for joining. I hope you enjoy this episode. I remember years ago when I was researching about fair trade and introducing the concept of fair trade to my university students in marketing and business class. And we were looking at the profile of the founder of People Tree, a Japan and UK organization which supports workers in Nepal and India who are making their products from organic cotton. And the whole concept of fair trade is so important. Products were more expensive, but you know that the workers are getting a fair wage. But one of the things that the founder, Sophia Mini, said is that she founded the company hoping that her company would be irrelevant in a few years' time. But she's been running the company for over 20 years, and the whole concept of fair trade is not irrelevant, it's still very relevant. So, how do we? get companies to be more transparent and be more accountable about their supply chain, about the workers that are making their product or supplying their services, no matter where their headquarters are, no matter where their products and services are being made and offered. In today's episode, I'm talking with consultant Ben Foraker, who is originally from the UK, has lived in Tokyo for the last 13 years and works for Berkeley Research Group. They work with a lot of companies to help them investigate and strategize a more ethical supply chain. In this episode, he explains the key concepts and considerations and hurdles and successes of his work. I'm JJ Walsh, your host in Hiroshima, Japan, and today I'm talking with Ben Foraker in Tokyo. Thank you so much for joining, Ben. Thank you. It's a pleasure to, pleasure to be here, pleasure to be part of this. It's wonderful to talk to you. We did a collaborative project recently uh, with ACC Journal, which I think is coming out soon and talking about sustainability and business. And it was so wonderful as a way to learn about some of the things that you do, hear some of your ideas. And then of course, I'm very passionate about sustainability. So then to make the connection to this talk show has been wonderful. Yeah, that um, was a great opportunity as well. Thank you. Yeah, great. Um, hi, so you said you've been in Tokyo for 13 years, is that right? Yes, well, nearly 13 years this September, yes. And could you tell us a little bit about the kind of work that you do in Tokyo? Sure. Um, well, so um, I work for a company called the Barclay Research Group. Um, we're a business consultancy. Um, essentially, what we're doing is we're working for companies um, on risk-related issues. So um, that may be trying to identify risk. It may be mitigating risk or it may be responding to risk. Um, so a lot of the work we do, obviously, a lot of the work I do is for Japanese multinationals. Um, and our focus is either on the on the overseas transactions or their overseas partnerships um, or the existing operations they have overseas. Um, and our work is really related to providing information to them, um, doing investigations, um, so finding out information that's not readily available um, and, as I say, identifying risks, whether it be financial, operational, reputational, legal, um, so that they can they can make decisions about their their business operations or their growth, their expansion. So in a nutshell, that's what we do. Um, but there's obviously many different facets along the way. You know, some of that's crisis management. Um, some of that's um, a little bit more about policy 
and uh, training and, and so on. But there's a, there's a whole range of things we do, but essentially under the kind of umbrella of risk. Yeah. And do you work mostly with Japanese companies with an international focus or is your focus in based in Tokyo, but working with more Asian countries that do work in Japan or is it both ways? Sure. I mean, as a company, we're we're global. Um, but my my role really, um, I'm based in Japan, so I would say 80% of my clients are Japanese multinationals, and that means that most of the work we do is looking outwards from Japan. Um, so a lot of the work in the emerging markets, um, but also you know, it's it's kind of sector wide. We're very lucky to have a very global team of people that we can draw information from. Um, and there's also work coming into Japan that we're involved with too. So um, recently there's a lot of um, activity, especially with private equity firms investing into Japanese assets. And so we provide similar support for them, um, looking at what those risks may be in, in the Japanese market. That's so interesting and important. Uh, yesterday, I was talking with a sustainability consultant in terms of uh, creating sustainable communities, helping people label and be transparent in the apparel industry or different businesses to customers as they're actually doing business. But it seems like a lot of the work that you do is before the products get to the business. So talking about supply chain, thinking a little bit further back um, to make sure that the business is being run in an ethical way. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's there's a different range of, of projects that we'll do. Um, the interesting thing when we talk about risk and sustainability is there's, there's a, a direct link because many organizations, especially in Japan, are currently going through the process of trying to look at their sustainable agenda. And many companies, many traditional companies are kind of looking at the next um, 20 to 30 years and thinking, well, is our company still going to be relevant then? Are we still going to be able to sell or market or produce the same types of products? Um, you know, is our supply chain viable? Is it, is it sustainable itself? And so I think there's, there's two ways of doing it. There's looking at the, the very high level overview of where our company is going and what do we need to change? And then there's the much more, um, you know, I, I guess, um, you know, much more detailed view of, you know, looking specifically at our supply chains, perhaps, or our business partnerships. Um, so there's there's different facets to that in terms of, um, you know, what we look at. But all of it, to be honest, from from my perspective, everything um, relates very closely to the, the whole sustainability agenda. Yeah, very interesting. In the um, article that we were both a part of recently for the American Chamber of Commerce, uh, you were talking about it's not just about uh, like image. It's not just about branding. It's also about survival. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, um, it's very interesting. And this is a this is a topic we I, I can talk about for forever. But um, I think when I first started um, looking at sustainability with companies, uh, one of the things that came up is, and especially if we're looking at supply chain, for instance, traditionally our supply chains have been there for us to, you know, there are value creation, okay? Um, but traditionally companies have been taught to squeeze supply chains, squeeze the margins, make the costs um, a, a lot cheaper for their clients, on, uh, ultimately who will, who will pay the cost of the supply. Um, but what we're now looking at for a lot of companies, um, especially when we're looking at adopting sustainability, uh, um, you know, initiatives initiatives is we're actually saying that that doesn't actually work anymore. So there was a big question about you know the current situation and, and the current way that we understand capitalism. Um, how does that work in, in the new sustainable environment that we're being asked to operate in? Uh, because instead of um, being competitive and, and trying to you know uh, look at cost cutting, et cetera, we're talking about investing. And we're talking about creating value and creating, uh, you know, helping our, our supply chains, helping our social and, and environmental capital. That means we have to invest money. That means we have to think about business in a different way. And and one of the professors that I um, that I was working with at, at Oxford University um, actually said, well, you know, we have to understand the basis of capitalism. So the traditional capitalism, yes, it was about creating creating revenue and creating pay payments for our shareholders and so on. It was it was all about that. Um, but capitalism is changing. 
Um, if you were to look back um, you know, into Victorian England, so I'm, I'm from Britain, so that's my easy analogy, but Victorian England, and you were running a, a cotton processing factory, um, and you had a new cotton processing factory that was set up down the road um, that was producing cotton a lot faster, you'd probably be saying, well, you know, let's, let's look at how we're going to compete with them. Let's make more use of child labor. And in Victorian England, that would have been perfectly acceptable because children worked in those types of factories. But these days, of course, we would, that would be outrageous for us to su suggest that that's what we were going to do. So the goalposts are moving. And I think that one of the fundamental things we have to understand is we have to, um, we have to preserve the environment that we need for doing business. And that means that we have to look at everything from a holistic perspective. It's not just focusing purely on revenue, profitability, product, and so on. We have to take everything into consideration when we're putting our plans together. Um, so for me, that's that's one of the you know, the fundamental things we have to kind of understand and accept um, before we start adopting SDGs and initiatives on sustainability. Because going back to the previous um, slide, you said it's it's all about you know what is it we're trying to achieve. What's our what's our purpose? What's our value? And what's our connection to all of these things? Yeah. Well, since you mentioned child labor, which is such an important consideration in terms of supply chain, uh, it reminded me looking at this information that you sent to me. Thank you. Um, looking at this reminded me of talking with uh, Sophia Mini many years ago, who runs People Tree, and many people who have fair trade clothing shops. And a lot of the key points that they say, even though they started 20 years ago, they always say our mission, our dream is to not be necessary anymore, that all fair, all trade becomes fair. And there is no need for this label of fair trade. But that hasn't happened in so many years. And so the issue of child labor and slavery is still a really important topic to discuss with corporations mm. in terms of compliance for international standards, but also ethics. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it is. I think um, there's there's different facets to, to this topic. Um, child labor and modern slavery, slavery are obviously very emotive topics. And you know we see pictures like on the screen of children working in factories, children picking cotton, and so on. And you know most of us are kind of like, well, how could this happen? But at the same time, you know we're all drinking our coffee, we're all wearing our our, our t-shirts, and we're not really questioning where this has come from and whether we've made any choices in terms of our buying habits and and the decisions about what products we we buy and what we make. But I think there's um, so there are. Um, there are there is a, a discussion to be had about those types of things, but the other thing to understand is, you know, why is there child labour? Um, you know, there's there's many um, reasons that child labour and modern slavery exists, and obviously it it ranges from from various different things. There's there's people trapped in poverty, there's people trapped in debt, um, there's the kind of economies of the countries that they're living and and working in, all the way down to even in Tokyo. You know, you have um, you know young girls being coerced into prostitution and and pornography. So there's all different things taking place along that 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 kind of um, that kind of line of, of what we would class as modern slavery and child labor and so on. But I think if you take an example, um, I mean, so a great example is coffee. So um, when we think about coffee, 80% of coffee is produced um, from smallholding farms. Um, so these are, are you know, farmers who uh, we probably never think about when we we're drinking our cup of coffee, but they're smallholding farms in countries like Vietnam. Um, those smallholding farms are on a plantation and the plantation is owned by someone who runs that particular estate. Um, so they, they have extremely low wages, if anything. And um, they, they often don't get off the, the plantation. I mean, it's too far for them to travel. They don't get the chance. They're always working. Um, so they have to go to the local estate shop to buy their, their goods. And the local estate shop is run by the estate. It can charge whatever prices it wants to charge. And so the, the farmers end up paying more than they can afford. And so they end up in debt. And this um, has a, a, a kind of a long-term cyclic effect because the family is then trapped in this, this kind of debt bondage. They can't ever escape from this debt. And so uh, the children 
are pulled in to do work as well because you know what's the point in sending them to have an education we can't afford it anyway um and so you know these families for generations they're trapped in this cycle so i think one of the reasons that we're still talking about this is that companies have um very um correctly uh, looked at fair trade initiatives but one of the things that we have to understand is that you know, we can't just turn our back on all the other things that are going on. We need to actually find remedies. We need to actually find solutions. So if we're producing coffee, we need to address this poverty cycle that the smallholder farms are existing in, because otherwise it's just a continuous, um, you know, generation by generation effect and nothing will ever change. So I think that we really need to understand it from that perspective in terms of why is this happening what's the economic reason what's the social reason and then try to look at how we can perhaps address that going forward it's a really complicated issue um uh, recently north korea was in the news because they had a lot of children volunteer to go work in the coal mines that was the official propaganda right so it's sometimes it's not even just to help your family with necessary income. Um, it's it's a lot of social pressure and uh, propaganda from the the leadership as well. It could be it could be a variety of of reasons. Um, but the UN does have in in terms of human rights and protecting children. Uh, to give them the right to be children, to go to school, to have time to play. Um, this is part of our international human rights standards, right? Yeah, so um, you know, the UN have the, the Ruggie framework, which is something that's um, been developed and it, it talks about, and again, it's a framework. It's not, um, you know, it's not a, a black and white requirement, it's a recommendation in terms of, um, what you know we should understand in terms of our responsibility towards these issues and it talks about a state's duty it talks about a corporation's duty in terms of how we approach these things and um you know so a state's duty is to have these these national action plans these naps in place um, which talks about um their policies on protecting human rights and then the corporate responsibility talks about you know, an actual corporation putting their own framework in place, their own policies and procedures in place to, to respect human rights. And then, um, as you see, then the third part of those uh, United Nations frameworks, which is probably the most interesting part, is a victim's right to access effective remedies. So um, it essentially means that that's putting the responsibility on corporations and on governments uh, to, you know, directly support remedial measures in order to fix these issues and i think that fundamentally changes the way that companies will um will will respond and will deal with their supply chains because it's basically now saying you know we have uh, a, a corporate responsibility to deal with this we can no longer sit back and just you know look at cheaper supply and cheaper cost um, we're now being asked to actually address things from the bottom up um, and i think that that will be one of the key changes now these guiding principles are just that and often we'll say you know that companies have to make money at the end of the day you know we can't look at every you know we have millions of suppliers all over the world um so we can't possibly visit every single small holding farm and every single you know garment factory um but we do have to put some some roadmaps in place in terms of what is it that is important to us as a company and where are we going to focus our our effort and where are we at least going to start looking at this and addressing this so i think the un guiding principles are very important as a as a as a kind of a a, a basic framework in terms of what we need to be looking at but it's is just that i mean the the legislation obviously isn't um, forcing companies to do this. It's more a question of whether as a company we're going to take this ethical responsibility or whether we're not going to take this ethical responsibility. And you know, when you look at carbon and you know, environmental issues related to carbon and so on, um, it's great that every country is committing to you know, zero carbon or carbon neutral by 2050, 2045, 2030. It kind of feels like everyone's running off to different planets and you know we're not all going to the same place and i think it's the same here you know there needs to be a lot more discussion and collaboration in terms of how we're going to fix this as a community of businesses 
or as a you know a community of nations, I guess, in terms of um, trying to look at some of these issues. Because uh, you know, as I mentioned, I do a lot of work for Japanese companies, and one Japanese company cannot solve the child labour issue in Vietnam or in Indonesia. It's it's impossible for them to do that on their own. So there needs to be a lot more thought put into this about how we can approach it as you know in a collaborative manner. I think definitely. Um, but if a company is doing something better than compliance above compliance this is a a chance for good branding right to right. to convey that message to the consumer and now i think you've talked about in a few articles how in 2021 after coronavirus after all of these big scandals of apparel industry and and lots of industries not taking care of human rights that if a company is above compliance and doing things responsibly that is something that the consumer will react positively to right I think you're right. And we're seeing a lot of changes, not just from consumer behavior. We're also seeing a lot more investor pressure. Um, we're seeing a lot more pressure from uh, from banks, financial institutions about what they're going to fund and what they're not going to fund. We're seeing a lot more pressure from companies looking at doing due diligence on their business partners. Um, so I think that pressure is is beginning to move things. So it's interesting. Normally, it's the legislation that moves things, but I think now we're seeing a different kind of pressure being exerted on companies. And there's 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 several reasons for that. I think people are more aware of the issue. And so essentially, we're saying to companies, you know, we, it's great that we're making money, but we can no longer make money out of um, damaging our social or our, envir our environmental capital. So we have to give back. We have to create value for our entire value chain, our, all of our stakeholders. That's that's one thing we're looking at. But there is also this uh, pressure from investors that they want to be seen to be investing in, um, you know, obviously, you know, companies with ESG awareness, um, social awareness, environmental awareness, and good governance. And I think that what we're beginning to um, see, especially with a lot of clients in Japan, is um, that pressure is is increasing in terms of their the 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 transparency they're being asked to provide on their operations and their processes and i have to say japan is responding to that very well it's taking it very seriously um but you're right it's not just consumers although consumers are also you know key key to this whole thing i mean the the question is really will consumers pay more money for products that they know are going to be you know ethically produced and um, you know we're seeing it uh, with the the you know the Xinjiang issue in China and so on that there's a lot of concern about you know, as you mentioned North Korea as well. I mean, you know, are those children volunteering to work in the mines or are they being cajoled into doing so? And you know how are we putting a spin on that? But I think um, there's a lot more realization from consumers, and I'd also say from employees. So um, one of the interesting things about Japan, if you look at the next. You know, 10, 20, 30 years is the demographics. Um, you know, the population in Japan is is decreasing rapidly, and so for us to be able to resource our companies in the future, we're going to need to attract talent from abroad. And the people coming from abroad are going to be you know, judging which companies they're going to work for and selecting them, not just based on their compensation, but also on what they stand for and their their kind of ethical position. So I think that's something that's very important to to mention too. And interesting, you you just put up the the picture about the the new chief of the Kaden Ren in in Japan, um, who's actually um, come out and said, you know, that as as a as a as a business lobby, um, we're going to put human rights at the top of our agenda. And I think these types of statements, this type of um, awareness of the issue, is is something that's just increasing in its. Um, in its in its uh, in the strength in terms of the message that's coming across and that's going out to to companies in in Japan. So we're in a situation now where anyone who's not discussing this as part of their strategy is already way behind. Um, and you know the question is, well, well then how do we adopt it? What do we do? How does this ruggy framework mean that we have to operate? What does it mean about the relationships with our with our stakeholders? Um, so that's that's the kind of situation I think we're in right now. That's really interesting and so so nice to see some positive changes and some public statements like this uh, from the head of the business lobby. Um, one of the things that you said in a, a really interesting article that you did recently, I think it was Nikkei Asia as well, talking about there is something innate in the 
concept of corporate Japan to take care of society. Mm. And I thought that was really interesting. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a、um, there is a, a a broader cultural awareness of Japanese companies existing to contribute to their domestic capital.、Um, and if you look at you know, especially if you look at post-war Japan, so、um, you know the, the the companies that that built themselves up and became you know global leaders,、um, they were all about. Existing for the communities they operate in, we have a lot of、um, business groups in Japan, and you know it's a slightly different approach to what we would have in the West. When you look at supply chains and and you know how we support the economies of different markets, we're very much focused on Tokyo, Osaka, perhaps as as the major capital centers. But there's many many factories and suppliers all over Japan, and if we、um, push them out the market, then that particular part of Japan will 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 be suffering. So、um, You know, companies understand that they need to support. They need to allocate,、um, you know, work and、uh, you know opportunities around the country. And I think that Japanese companies have this overall concern that they do exist for the community, for the for the for the national community at least. And I think、um, if you if I look at some of the projects that we've worked on for Japanese companies overseas, so let's take for instance,、um, you know, let's take for instance a, an industrial park in Myanmar. Okay,、um, so when Japan was investing into Tilawa, which is the industrial an industrial park in Myanmar, they weren't just going in, sort of going in and thinking, you know, well, you know, this is a this is an immediate opportunity for us. We can go in, take what we want, and come out again. They were looking at setting up something that could be a benchmark for future reference for you know further development and building communities around that industrial park. So they weren't just looking at setting up factories. They were looking at well, how do we actually you know、uh, provide accommodation for people working there? How can we Make the transportation systems work. How can we, you know, work on efficiency and and make sure that everyone benefits from that whole situation? So I think it's it's a great example of Japanese companies looking at the long term perspective on their businesses. Now I think where we are now is we're trying to take that and we're trying to say, well, Japan has a big opportunity now to almost be a world leader in terms of how we coexist with our supply chains. So let's take that sense of responsibility. And let's now apply it, you know, more broadly in a in a global in a global way, because you know, obviously Japan relies on many other countries in terms of its supply.、Um, so there's opportunities to do that, I think, for for Japan. So we're not asking for a huge cultural change. It's just more more of the same. But let's develop this, and let's build on this, and let's also、uh, help other countries, other organisations to understand you know, what our objectives are and and how they can also contribute. I think that's also really interesting because when many people think about Japan and Japanese companies, we have this concept of a job for life, and so this is another example of of this kind of community、uh, association.、Um, traditionally, you join a Japanese company and and you would never consider leaving.、Uh, you'd be promoted, they restructure, but you would always have a job, and that's also I think part of this.、Um, Kind of this domestic social responsibility that Japanese companies feel that they they actually have. So I think that's a very interesting part of, particularly for Japanese companies,、um, how they approach their their businesses. And I think that that traditional、uh, integrity. That you're talking about is sometimes lost.、Um, let's talk a little bit about how Japanese corporate. Uh, structure is comparing to international standards. You had、uh, some examples. So the 2020 Human Rights、um, Standards, international standards, and it's not good news, right? It's <laughs> it's I mean, lagging, lagging behind. So is this traditional taking care of society? Does that only extend? To within Japan, or is the concept that you take care of your workers, no matter where they are in the world, no matter what race they are, is that become the modern logic of corporations in Japan? I hope so. I think we're in that process right now. I think that、um, it's not something you can fix overnight. This this is going to take an incredibly long time to to understand and to implement. And and you know, one of the things we're saying to our clients is. 
you know, don't expect to just sort of put a policy on your website and then suddenly it's fixed. It's not. Um, it's going to take an incredible amount of time to understand your supply chain and to understand all your third party stakeholders and understand how you're going to tackle this and so on. So um, there's two parts to that. Number one, yes, Japanese legislation falls way behind global standards in terms of you know, putting things together on human rights and, and issues. I mean, you know, we talk about the diversity inclusion um, issues in Japan um, as a great example of, of, of where it lags behind. Um, and there has been a school of thought, well, if it's not a legal requirement, do we really need to spend money to do this? You know, so I think we have to consider that too. But I think that Japanese companies aren't going out there thinking, you know, you know, what the hell we we will do what we like. They they absolutely do not want to break the law. They do not want to upset people. They're all about this uh, the harmony that that we talk about in in Japan. Um, and I think that that's something that they are taking very seriously. So we can look at Japanese companies on their human rights standards, and I think that. Um, we may be able to apply that to other countries too. It's just that Japan has such a large footprint in other markets, especially in emerging markets where these issues are very prominent. Um, so it's, it's a relatively easy target. Um, but at the same time, it's very hard to penetrate the walls of these big corporations to figure out what exactly is going on inside and what exactly are you, you talking about when you're putting your strategies together. So I think there's that angle. But I think the other side is, um, as I said, the, the complexity of the issue. We, we can't just go out and fix it. So what we're really recommending to, to our clients is that you, know, you have to kind of do a risk mapping. So what, where are the key areas that we need to focus? Where's the highest risk? Where's our largest operations? And then as part of that risk mapping, we can prioritize areas that we can focus on. So if we think we can, you know, as a, let's go back to coffee farming in Vietnam, if that's one of our areas of, of supply, then maybe we can focus on a particular region or a particular aspect of that supply chain in Vietnam and start putting in some measures to take remedial actions and thinking about what we can do. And if there's things we can fix ourselves, that's fantastic. But if not, who do we need to support us? What, what other people do we need? Where do we need to get information from? And you know, who can we collaborate with and partner with? Um, and as you're showing on the screen, the, the, this is from, from Unilever. I mean, basically putting together their, their 12 fundamental principles. So this isn't anything that's um, overtly complex. It's a very simplified version of, look, these are the kind of things that we expect from our suppliers and our business partners. It's really easy to understand. And obviously underneath each one of these 12 things, there's, there's policies and frameworks in place, but it's just a very simple way of saying, you know, this is our this is our starting point. Um, this is step one, and from here we can then evolve and develop our programs and you know build out our roadmaps. But at least it's 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 putting your foot in the you know it's putting your foot in the sand and saying, hey, you know, we're, we're going to stand for this and we're going to move forward from this point. And I think that's really um, part of the battle. It also, I mean, it relates to compliance as well. I I often think that a, a really great comparison for the way this is rolling out is when we look at um, the, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. So, you know, four or five years ago, if we were talking about FCPA issues in Japan, it was really still educating people about what is a foreign official, what is a government official, and you know, how do we interact with them, and what is a bribe, and why shouldn't we pay bribes? But now, five years later, companies have compliance in place, they have policies in place, they have anti-bribery training. So it doesn't take long for this to roll out and become an established part of our operations. And I think if we take on responsibilities for our supply chains, in the same way, I think, um, you know, in, in five years time, just imagine what, what changes we could make. Stay tuned. The interview will continue in less than a minute. This talk show and podcast is held every weekday, 9 a.m., 12 noon or 5 p.m. Japan time to talk with guests from around Japan and highlight the great work that they're doing keeping the quality of life and quality of our planet in balance with profits. All of the shows are 60 minutes long, enough time for listeners to learn about the innovation and expertise of the guest, as well as consider connections to sustainability. 
Because we are in Japan, I'm in Hiroshima, and my guests are from all over Japan. Listeners are also able to hear about life, culture, heritage, traditions in Japan, as well as Japanese specific innovation or travel destinations. Although the setting of Seeking Sustainability Live is in Japan, a lot of the topics and key points that we talk about are certainly relevant in other parts of the world. We have an audience in America, in England, in Australia, in India, in so many different regions of the world. Thank you so much for listening. And I really appreciate your comments and questions during the live talk streams and after on the videos or podcasts. Now back to our show on Seeking Sustainability Live. Uh, one of the things that I've seen you mention a few times is about leadership. That if you are going above compliance, you're trying to be a more ethical, more sustainable company, um, you really need to have the top people passionate about what they're doing and have that enthusiasm kind of embed the corporate structure. And I've seen this play out with so many examples of sustainable business. Uh, one of the examples I love to use with my marketing students is about um, Kikoman, soy sauce. And the leader, uh, the head who has now passed on, but he, his legacy that was so important to him to pass on a sustainable business to his great, great grandchildren. He was planning generations ahead. He moved operations to America. He still wanted to take care of his American staff. Um, it's a very Japanese company based in heritage and history. He didn't lose that. But there's so many interesting connections to sustainability from his vision and passion to have a great company and a great product for generations. So this whole idea of a long-term vision from the top, is is so key for any sustainable business do you, you see this in your interactions a lot absolutely i mean having the vision is is the first thing that we always need to have in place i mean if we don't know where we're going how can we possibly work on our kpis and our strategy and who we're going to hire and you know what we're going to decide and what types of products we're going to sell and so on so i think um you know fundamentally having a very clear and and simple and understood vision is is key to the whole thing. And um, you know, there's there's many company visions. I mean, you can Google different companies and you can see their vision. And a lot of them talk about you know being the number one in this and you know the the best um, uh, sort of employer of choice and so on. But but a real vision is something that employees and stakeholders will be drawn towards and feel that you know I can get behind this and this makes my my purpose for getting up in the morning and going to work meaningful because I'm contributing to something um, that 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 has a meaning that has a purpose and 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 has an impact on people's lives and I think that that's really the type of vision we need to be understanding so if you don't have I mean it's the same story when we're always talking about senior management commitment if it doesn't start from from senior management then um, we're, we're already on the back foot um, you can't implement these these policies from middle management or from from the bottom up. It just won't work unless senior management is um, is leading by example and constantly communicating the vision why we're doing this, why it's important, and you know why we're making the decisions that we're making. I think those are the the things that we really have to have in place to um, to put together a meaningful program, whether it's sustainability, whether it's profitability, whatever it may be. I think those are really you know key decisions that we we need to understand and i think that um you know in terms of the structure of japanese corporates um a lot of this is consensus driven um you have your family owned companies as you mentioned where you probably have a single person who can um who can create that vision and 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 can fashion the business in their in their in the way they want to but many corporates are are run on a consensus basis you know you have a board you have committees um you have many many different elements putting your strategies together so it's not so straightforward 
in defining what it is we need to be standing for as a company? Where does that kind of ethical responsibility come into our vision? And how do we communicate that to everyone and keep everybody happy? Um, so there's a lot of work to be done, I think, still on companies understanding what that actually is. Um, and, you know, we've I've worked with many companies all over the world on establishing visions. And um, I think that, that the process is often extremely overcomplicated. Um, you know, I think simplifying that vision back down to sort of, you know, military basics, you know, we need to get from A to B. So where are we now? What do we need? And, you know, when are we going to arrive at B? Um, you know, so how are we going to put that in place? I think those are the things that we need to really figure out when we're we, we're putting these kind of overall visions and purposes together. But, but that's really um, one of the things that I think is changing when we look at corporations globally. I mean, you only have to now look on, on your TV and look at you know, probably 70% of the advertisements you see on television relate somewhat to sustainability, to some kind of ethical purpose. I think things are changing quite rapidly um, in terms of our, our perspectives on these things. A really interesting shift, and I think this relates to what we're talking about with leadership, is you were talking about the shift from CSR, which is just one part of a company that doesn't have much power, um, to becoming a more ethical business, kind of embedded in core values. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think one of the things to be aware of is it's really easy to to do what a lot of people here are calling greenwashing. Um, and I, I personally don't really like that 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 phrase, but um, it's it's easy to throw around. But um, you know, you have your your kind of ESG reporting, and then you have your CSR. And now we have our SDGs and you know, many companies just putting those SDGs on the website and saying, hey, you know, we're, we're committed. Um, but again, these things are just the, the SDGs are just a guideline. They're not a frame. They're not a policy. They're not something that you can that will tell you how to run your business. So I think uh, we have to be really careful about giving meaning to um, the, the operations that we're involved in. ESG reporting has become rather commonplace. Um, and many companies in their reporting, they're doing integrated reports, they have ESG standards, you can look on the websites and they're publishing um, facts and figures. What I find is a lot of that ESG reporting is still based on financial data or quantitative metrics, things that we can measure, things that we can look back and say, hey, you know, we've reduced our carbon emissions by this much and we, we've done this much recycling. And if you read all of these ESG reports, you think we don't have to worry about the future of the planet because we've got it sorted out. But you know, I think it's easy to put put a you know to analyze those fig those figures and put a spin on it. CSR is also complicated because where does that fit into things? So companies have suddenly you know CSR departments, but often those CSR departments, you're right, they don't really have decision making power. They don't necessarily um, form part of the overall strategy of the company. It tends to be um, sort of one-off initiatives that we're doing where we're you know, contributing money or we're providing education or we're providing transportation or something along those lines. Um, and it's really interesting. I recently did a project for a, a Japanese company who had an issue um, in Bangladesh. And um, the issue was that they had uh, a, a communication from an NGO telling them that there was all kinds of human rights abuses and environmental abuses in, in the work that they were doing in Bangladesh. And um, they were quite fearful of this, this message because many NGOs, as you know, they're, they're very emotive, they're very passionate, and they're asking for open communication, they're asking for clarification. And um, companies know that how you respond to an NGO is very crucial because the NGO can publish your response or they can put it anywhere around the world on social media overnight before you have a chance to even figure out, is does, is it actually true? Are these, these claims valid? Um, so we were helping them, number one, understand the allegations. You know, are they true? What validity do they have? Have we done um, an investigation into these allegations? Let's find out what the facts are. And number two, let's find out about the NGO. I mean, are they uh, an NGO we want to collaborate with, want to communicate with, or should we be looking at other NGOs in terms of how we move this forward. Um, because the, those those types of things you have to put in place before you make your decision about how to proceed. Um, and one of the interesting things we found out was this company were already doing a lot of CSR type initiatives in Bangladesh. 
But the connection between the CSR department and the team that was running this particular project um, was 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 very poor, and and they weren't really talking about what they were doing, and they weren't really leveraging the CSR initi initiatives that they were actually involved in, and it was quite interesting to see that they weren't really making that connection um, and they were worried about the shareholder meeting coming up and you know what if the activists come to the shareholder meeting and start asking questions and make it very difficult for us um, and we were saying you know, the same thing you you need to set the agenda so you need to you know uh, you need to put this at the forefront of your shareholders meeting this is what we stand for this is who we are and this is what we're doing in other countries and how we're developing our you know agenda our, our vision our strategy our sustainability agenda um you know lead that conversation and look at all the positive things you are doing so it, it's a, it's a long story but in summary i think that we really need to understand you know what is esg and what is csr and what are sdgs and how do they all fit together and do we really need different departments for all these things or is it not just all one and the same thing and who is responsible for these things in our company do we have a chief sustainability officer or is it a chief CSR officer? I mean, who, who's taking responsibility? Who do they report to? And, you know, who, who pays attention to what they do? So there's, there's many things that I think we need to look at when we're, we're structuring this and giving it meaning within our organizations. Uh, one of the reasons I decided to become a consultant in the tourism and kind of sustainability focused for business industry was to help businesses which are doing sustainable things, good for society, good for planet, but they are not communicating that as part of their brand. Um, so I would, in my research, uh, when I was a university professor, I would go around to different hotels, for example, and talk to staff and find out if they are doing CSR and what what are they doing to help society or help the planet. And quite often, they were doing amazing things, but mm -hmm. they didn't have it on the website. They only had it maybe at the shareholders meeting in a small section just for the shareholders. And so making this connection between doing ethical work, doing good work, doing sustainable work, and communicating that to the customer as part of your brand, I it, I was I'm still surprised how there's kind of a gap in having that activity doing good and not having it as part of your brand, and that that seems like a lot of the work that you're doing as well is to not only help them. Uh, research the supply chain and find out if they are doing the right thing, but helping them communicate as well. Is that right? It is, yeah. And I think it's really about, um, you know, how we put all that messaging together and, and you know, create, create the impact we want to create. And I think there's a couple of things to mention on that. One is um, if we do that effectively, it has a knock-on effect. And you know, you see a wave of people saying, "Hey, you know, how how impactful is that? Let's do the same," and and so on. It's it, it really is effective. But I think we, I was having this very discussion um, earlier this week, and um, with with one particular global brand manager and with one professor from Hidotsubashi University, and we were talking about this as well. I was talking about the same issue, and they were saying, you know, one of the issues we have in Japan is we don't want to be seen to be arrogant. So if we're going out there saying, look at all this great stuff we're doing, we're actually, um, you know, we're we, we running the risk of being perceived as, as arrogant. And it is very difficult for Japanese organizations to sort of fly their flag in terms of, you know, how good we're doing on all of these things. If you're a Western organization, it's, it's much easier. Um, you know, I'm not saying that they're all arrogant, but it's much easier to say, look what we're doing. We're doing all this and this is, but Japanese companies find it very hard to, to fly their flag on on these issues, they want someone else to notice it and to talk about it, um, but they won't necessarily think that they can go out there and and start preaching about all the great stuff we're doing. So I think that part of the um, the the conversation we're having is how you can make those that type of communication in a way that's not going to be um, seen as out of character for a Japanese company, um, but is also something that um we can make sure that people are aware of the contribution we're making and the message that we're trying to give but it's it's a very um interesting 
subject when you talk about the, the kind of the cultural ways of doing business and how we communicate and so on. It's it's not so easy just to sort of put together a, a you know a presentation and go out there and do it. However, there there is a lot of good. And as as you say, I mean, I think the interesting thing about it is um, most of the companies we're working with understand there is a need to to make changes. And um, we're going. We're currently going through that process, but it's 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 very early days. You know, you don't just have a, a shift in in culture overnight. It it takes time to do that. And on the other hand, I should mention there are big companies who are saying they're doing amazing things and not. So that goes back to your point about about greenwashing. So that was one of the things that I really wanted to help the small, medium sized businesses that were doing great things and being so modest about it. But they really should have that as part of their branding because it's very appealing, not just for international customers or visitors, but for domestic customers who are now becoming more aware that these things are important. Right. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I think one of the. Uh, one of the, uh, I guess, one of the complexities we have, especially when we go back to talk about supply chains, is that um, you'll you'll see a lot of policies now where companies are saying they have human rights policy and you know due diligence is is very important. They do human rights due diligence on on supply chains, and I think to an extent they do try to do that. But many companies, as as we've seen from you know studies done by Harvard Business Review and so on, is that most companies only focus on tier one suppliers. So they 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 really have great relationships with the tier one suppliers. They probably have all of their policies and processes in place with them. They have good onboarding procedures. But what's lacking is what's happening beyond those tier one suppliers. Um, and if you go down further to those tier fours, that's where we get to those small holding farms in Vietnam, where there's very little incentive to change. Um, there's very little understanding of what sustainable methods of farming are. Um, there's very little, you know, uh, reason for them to do anything other than what they've always done. So I think uh, the onus is really on the companies to expand what they're claiming to be doing um, and sort of look a bit further than what's easy for them to fix. Um, and, you know, take take a bit more, um, I guess, be a bit more involved in, in the lower tier suppliers is is probably one of the things that I would sort of be concerned that is not not taking place right now. And, you know, it's just things like supply chain due diligence. So we do a lot of supply chain due diligence. And that's basically going out and finding out those those types of issues. And um, most of the I have to say, most of the work we do is more reactive than proactive in terms of the reason we're asked to do that work is because we've had an NGO approach us or because um, you know, one of our investors had, has asked us or perhaps we've had a whistleblower who's who suggested that there's issues in, in the supply chain. So that then forces a company to, to bring someone in to say, you know, go and please have a look and check and see what's happening. Um, but a lot of the time, the companies don't have the resource to do that quite so proactively. So again, it goes back to this, this risk mapping and prioritization. But um, yeah, I think we, we have to be very careful about um, you know, what we're claiming to do and, and actually having some meaningful frameworks underneath that that are actually um, operationalized and implemented and understood by the various parties that, that, that should be connected and, and involved in those initiatives. Um, as you're saying, no, I mean, there's a lot of reports, a lot of discussion that's been done um, about, you know, paying lip service to the, the the UN. And as I said before, it's easy to put the SDGs on your website, but but there needs to be something underneath that. Again, it goes back to the, you know, the United Nations principles of, about being part of the solution and, um, you know, addressing the solution. I find it very interesting that um, if you look at a lot of the larger retail suppliers, they will have scorecards with their suppliers that focus on, you know, they're going to cut carbon by 3% and they're going to recycle 100% of their plastics and so on. These things are really quite straightforward in terms of tracking and putting some figures around and, and implementing. And if you want to continue supplying, you know, the, the major supermarket brand, supermarket brand, you will comply. But what happens below those tier one suppliers is, is where it gets really interesting. And that's what you're you're showing now is the alternative view um, about, you know, what, what level of suffering there is in the products that we're we're consuming. Um, and that's really taking place beyond the the scope of what many companies are focused on right now. And going back to the legislation, um, so there's a lot of talk in the in the EU right now about mandatory human rights due diligence. And I think that's also something that 
Japanese companies certainly are paying a lot of attention to. Um, if that type of legislation is implemented, then that will change our entire relationship with our suppliers, because it essentially means that we have to put reporting mechanisms in place so that someone in a tier four supplier can make a claim against the company at the very top of that supply chain. So putting CSR agreements into our supply chain contracts, um, doing human rights due diligence, doing social audits, and having much more visibility on our lower tier suppliers is going to be um, something that I think we, we need to be implementing over the next few years to get this to get this right. Yeah, because and I think that legislation is coming. You you talked about uh, one of the key components, and I think it's here in your due diligence uh, chart from the OECD as well about uh, talking to stakeholders. And this is such a key concept, talking to not only your staff and getting ideas about wastage or social problems or work problems, but also having a hotline. I, I found that really interesting. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, um, so I'll, I'll tell you a story. So uh, a, a few years ago, probably about eight years ago, um, I was working for a, a company. I was doing some work for a German company that had a, uh, a factory in southern Thailand. And um, the factory in southern Thailand needed 1,500 people a day to run the factory. And the work wasn't particularly skilled. It just needed people to be on a production line doing a, a purpose. And um, I spent about two months with this um, with this with this factory. And I remember in the mornings standing on the factory gates with the general manager of the factory, who was a, a, you know, a, a Western guy who was standing on the, on the gates. And I, I sort of said, you know, you're always on the gate every morning. What are you doing? And he said, well, I'm, I'm counting the number of workers and I'm observing the workers coming through the gate because I'm trying to figure out that that one looks like they're only 12 years old. And that, that person there doesn't look particularly healthy. And that person's, you know, got bruise on their face and so on. And, uh, you know, it suddenly dawned on me that the, 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 the company doesn't interview each worker. They rely on third parties to bring X number of workers to the factory every day. And in southern Thailand, there's no loyalty. If a factory down the road is offering a slightly higher wage, everyone will just go to that factory. So um, the relationships we have with our with with the with the resource working in our supply chains is very different to what we'd expect in in Japan or in the US and so on. We have very little um, transparency and visibility about who's turning up to work. Um, so I think that. You know, that is one of the um, kind of eye-openers in terms of how companies need to understand um, supply chains and, 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 and figure out you know, what, what the actual issue is and what the, the challenge is in terms of dealing with that. So putting in those, um, you know, those, those policies, those, those um, expectations in terms of um, you know, what we want from our supply chains isn't quite so simple as just sending out a, a policy in a manual and saying, you know, in a questionnaire and saying, you know, Yoroshiko Anishimas, please comply with this. Um, it's more than that. When you go to Southern Asian countries like Indonesia, like Thailand, you need to speak to the communities where the factories are based because they know the situation. They know what the issues are. They know who's turning up to work at that factory. They know who the third party agents are. And to get a good uh, amount of context from you know, the, the stakeholders that are involved in not just that community, but also you know, the local governments, the regulators, uh, the, the, the other contractors, the other factories, you really need to have a good picture of what's going on before you can actually start thinking about, well, what can we do to protect ourselves and also protect our workforce? So I think that's part of what we would call you know, the due diligence or the, you know, the, the social audit um, that, that companies need to start thinking about how they're going to undertake that type of exercise so that they get a better picture of what's actually going on. That's so important. And especially as Japan's uh, labor is diminishing and the population is going down, these, these global labor considerations are going to be more and more important going forward, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's the same as, um, you know, we, we've seen, as I've said before, we've seen it with anti-corruption. Uh, you know, many of the governments in emerging markets have very high anti-corruption standards. And at the top level, it's, it's, you know, there's investigations taking place and all sorts of things going on. But still, corruption is endemic in those countries. And it's not easy to, to weed out corruption. It's the same with human rights issues. Um, we still have human rights issues in in globalized economies, Western world, you know, we're, we're still talking about 
you know, abuse of, of workers, sexual abuse, all sorts of things, power harassment in, in, in companies in Japan. So there's, there's, there's different manifestations of that. Um, but yeah, I think that going forward, we're going to see a lot more focus on, on the actual human rights. And again, the fundamental thing that, you know, we want people to invest in our country. We want the foreign investment coming in, but we don't want you to be making money out of damaging either the, the social or the environmental capital that you're, you're taking your supply from. You have to be providing value. You have to be putting something back or at least creating some kind of sustainability in, in, in the society or, or you know, in, in the communities you're operating in. Yeah, the whole concept of uh, doing business in a way that's not exploitative, right? Mm -hmm. That you don't want to exploit the workers, you don't want to exploit the environment uh, while you're making your products that you want to sell. You and and it's a it's a multi consideration discussion, right? It's not just. Right black and white this is the way it's got to be for every country for every situation in so many connections to sustainability and all these talks in the series you realize it's really case by case and you have to take the information available keep researching keep discussing keep making targets it's a marathon it's not a sprint you're you're never gonna get there and finish okay we're done right it's a continual process is that is that what you see as well yeah, absolutely it's, a, it's an evolution and um you know i i think that you know the great thing about uh, what what i really enjoy about my my job i mean we look at risks so we look at a lot of all the bad stuff um and that can be you know pretty emotional at sometimes when you're when, when you see what's going on but at the same time what we are doing is we're providing information for companies and it's information that's not necessarily easy to uh, to to get you can't just google you know supply chain in vietnam and find out what's going on with your supplier some of these suppliers aren't even necessarily registered um so so you know it's it's difficult to get that information so allowing companies access to the information they need is is crucial and then um as i said creating a roadmap so you know, number one, what is it we're trying to achieve? You know, what is our objective here? What can we do feasibly? And where do we need help? And, you know, putting that kind of roadmap in place in terms of where our focus is going to be and what we're going to stand for is is, is crucial. And the rest will will evolve um, from from that process. Um, but I think you you know you have to start somewhere and it does it does take time. But I, I would also say that there's a lot of, I mean, you know, you mentioned it before, you've spoken to many, many people in this area, you've worked with many companies who are doing very good things. Um, collaboration and discussion and forming consortiums is also a crucial part of this. Um, so reaching out to other companies and saying, hey, you know, we've got a problem. How do you deal with this? You know, can we learn from you? Those, those are the types of things we can do. NGOs are also uh, a very good source of information and can be very good allies. Um, you know, you you need to be selective about which ones you use, and you know you you need to be a bit careful about uh, you know vetting them and doing your due diligence on them. But but the ones that are very effective really know what they're doing. They can't run a business for you, but they will give you a lot of information and a, a lot of guidance about um, you know, what the issues are and and how they can possibly be resolved. So um, collaboration, I think, is the is the buzzword <laughs> for this. And it, it takes a village. It really does, right? Uh, having third-party certification systems in place, having good levels of compliance from government regulation, having NPOs or NGOs who are kind of watchdogs from the outside, having anonymous tip lines. It's, it's complex. And it, it has to get your information from a variety of stakeholders to really make it work effectively, right? Yeah, that's that's absolutely right, um, and that's where you know you you need to understand you know who who your resources would be in terms of how you get that information. Um, but I think any business that would be setting up today would would have that very much at the forefront of their agenda. I think the the issue we have is really sort of taking the the the, the long standing businesses and who are who are going through that process of readdressing what they're going to look like in in ten years time in line with the expectations of investors, consumers, stakeholders, employees, um, and, and trying to kind of figure out 
you know, how we're going to move this great big juggernaut <laughs> and that's been going down the highway and, and sort of move it in a different direction or at least sort of, you know, adjust the way that it's been operating. So I think, um, you know, those are the conversations that I think that uh, companies need to be having right now. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. That was a really insightful conversation. I learned so much and it's so important to keep having these discussions and keep helping businesses find the right path uh, to ethics and sustainability, not only for the society's sake in Japan and abroad, but for their own sake and their own survival, like you said, to be resilient over the long term and be a successful company. Yeah, well, Joy, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you ever so much. Really appreciate speaking to you this morning. It's wonderful. If people want to reach out and get in touch with you, what's the best way? Um, the best way um, is uh, by, well, you can link to me on LinkedIn. Um, that's probably the best way rather than sending out my email address. But um, otherwise, yeah, I'm very happy to, to have discussions, take questions. Um, but yeah, you'll find me on LinkedIn. Um, and that's probably the easiest and most effective way to get me. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, thank thank you. you, everybody, for joining today. And tomorrow, 5 p.m., we're talking with Jeremy Phillips, who is remodeling an old Japanese house and retaining some things, making it comfortable in other ways. So Akia remodeling tomorrow, 5 p.m. Please join us then. Thank you so much, Ben. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. If you want to learn more about the work that I do, have a look at inboundambassador.com. You can also sponsor the work that I'm doing on the YouTube channel, Patreon, buy me a coffee, coffee or haps. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day.